Welcome to Table Talk. A few weeks ago in one of our sessions in Ballymacashan Church, we had talked about headship in the church, and we talked about who is the actual head of the church. In this lesson, we want to look at that again. The Savoy Declaration tells us, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So who is the head of the church? The head of the Church of England, of course, is Her Majesty the Queen. She is the head of the established church. That goes back a long way. Henry VIII was the King of England from 1509 until his death in 1547. And of course, as we know, he was a serial marrier. We all know about his string of six wives. And we know how some of them were beheaded and I suppose the lucky ones just ended up divorced. In 1527, Henry appealed to the Pope for an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. The papacy at that time was under the control of Charles V of Spain, of the Holy Roman Empire, and he was Catherine's nephew, so the divorce was refused, and Henry's break with Rome was initiated. At that time, Henry declared himself to be the head of the English Church, a move which precipitated the English Reformation and which was consolidated when Henry dissolved the monasteries. One of Henry's most damaging pieces of legislation, I suppose, was called the theory of the divine right of kings. The belief that the king is appointed by divine authority and as such is therefore not answerable to any parliament or to the people, and that again is a position that Henry took and inherited from the Pope himself. It's that single idea that motivated the Stuart kings later on, James I, Charles I, Charles II, and James II, to persecute and torture and murder the Scottish Covenanters, who as Presbyterians refused to acknowledge that the king had any divine right whatsoever to order them to worship God in the way that the king preferred, and under the headship of a bishop. So to this very day, the Church of England is an established church, a national church, and Her Majesty the Queen is its head. But then we're nonconformists. So how can we accept that the Queen, or anyone else on this earth, is the head of the church? When we read the Bible, we discover that the head of the church is not the Queen, not the Pope, not even a pastor, and certainly not some modern-day self-appointed apostle. The head of the church is Christ. So let's look at what the Bible says about this matter. And there are two particular texts today that we want to consider. The first of those is Colossians chapter 1, reading from verse 13. He, Christ, has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. It's talking about Jesus. And Paul, writing to Colossae, goes on to say that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. We're going to call this the divine authority of the King of Kings, because only Jesus has the right to be the head of the church. Here's why. Because when we see Jesus, we see God incarnate. We can't see God because God is a spirit. We can't know what he looks like, although we do know that when he made mankind, he made us in his own image. But we do know what Jesus would have looked like. We know that he was a man and that he looked like other men. So Paul writes in verse 15 of that passage that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. When the first disciples looked at Jesus, they were literally looking at God incarnate in the flesh. In John 14 and verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Furthermore, when we think about Christ, we understand why God created absolutely everything that exists, because everything stems from him. He was the firstborn, the elder brother, if you like, of absolutely everything. That means not that there was a time when he didn't exist, or not that he was a created being, but it means that he has the right of inheritance, and that ultimately everything that was created will be his. In other words, creation was literally made for Jesus. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 16. So think of that. Everything began with Jesus. Everything finds its purpose in Jesus. Everything above and below, everything visible and invisible, all the angels, absolutely everything, is his, including the church. I just want to reiterate that there has never been a time when the Son did not exist. In verse 17 of that passage, Colossians 1, we read this. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. 
let's do a quick history lesson. This takes us back in our minds to the early 3rd century heretic Arius of Alexander. Arius, commonly known as Arius the Heresiarch, the father of all heresies, Arius taught that Jesus was a created being, taught that he was created by God the Father before the worlds were created, and that's not what Jesus said. In John's Gospel, Christ's eternal divine nature is stressed, showing that Jesus already existed in the beginning as God. Read John chapter 1. Jesus said, I and the Father am one. John 10 and verse 30. Jesus prayed that after his suffering, he would be restored to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was created. John 17 and verse 5. Arius was a heretic. But he was a heretic who had a great marketing technique. Arius set his false ideas to catchy choruses, and he taught them to the dockers and the seamen at the ports, and he spread them all over the world. The situation became so serious that a great council was called in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea. In its statement of faith, they said, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, Lord of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made." Jesus has always been and always will be. Jesus created the world and he holds everything together, including the church. Now all of that is an illustration of the relationship between Jesus and his church. Christ's church is gathered in his name and he, as God, is in the midst of it. He organises the church, he holds it together, just as a head organises the body. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And that's the purpose of the church, to bring glory to Jesus and not to any man or any woman. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Verse 19. Now, as you can see, as the head of the church, the position which only he can hold and exercise, Jesus has complete authority over his church and his kingdom. Now, a person who has complete authority over a kingdom is, in essence, a dictator, in the truest sense of the word. So I'm going to ask the question, is that a bad thing? Is it a bad thing that someone has ultimate and complete authority over a kingdom. Well, it would be in this world's terms, wouldn't it? Absolutely. If there was a dictator who was a sinner, a mere man who was running a country unchecked, then like Henry VIII or his successors, they would cause havoc, as the Stuart kings did with the Covenanters. But Jesus is different. He is the perfect man. He is without sin. His dictatorship, his ultimate and complete authority over his church, 
is benevolent in the truest possible sense. Let's think for a moment about the divine benevolence of the King of Kings. So turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. It says there that he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So as the head of the church, Jesus has authority over it. But what does Paul mean in Ephesians when he says that Paul is over all things to the church? We know that Christ rules and governs everything. But William Hendrickson points out that just as the church exists to exalt Christ, Christ governs the universe in the interests of the church. The rule of Christ is for the benefit of his people. So Romans 8 and verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So we know that sickness will come and hardship and misery and sorrow and bereavement and death. But in Christ, even those things are used for our benefit. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 35, in that famous passage, Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord Jesus, as the head of the church, bestows upon it his love and his care, and his benevolence. So when we think of Christ's absolute right to be the head of his church and we think of the benevolence he bestows upon it, that marks him out as being the direct opposite of most earthly absolute rulers. When we think of earthly dictators like Henry wanted to be, we see people who exercised their absolute authority simply to benefit themselves and very often to oppress other people. But when we see Jesus... We see him, the perfect man, the opposite of those, as one who exercises his almighty power for our benefit. Let's ask why. Why would the church be so blessed by having such a head as our Saviour, the Lord Jesus? Well, there's one good reason, and it's because the church is his body. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 23, 
That verse that we read together earlier, it said it is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Those who have been chosen by him and brought into the true church are likened to the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. Ephesians 5 and verse 28 says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So Jesus loves the church as we will love our own bodies. He gave himself for his body. Ephesians 5 verse 25 to 27 Husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it so that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. The church is his body. There's an interesting phrase in Ephesians 1 and 23. We can understand, to some extent, the church being the body of Christ. But what does it mean when it says that Christ is the fullness of him that filleth all in all? The church is his fullness. Jesus fills everything. That's interesting. It seems as if it's saying here that the church makes Christ complete. Hendrickson here comments, The church is Christ's complement, filling or completing him who fills all in all. And yet, as to his divine essence, Christ is in no sense whatsoever dependent on or capable of being completed by the church. But as a bridegroom is incomplete without the bride... As a vine cannot be thought of without the branches, as a shepherd cannot be thought of and seen without his sheep, so also Christ, as the head of the church, finds his full expression in his body, the church. A few weeks ago, I had to attend a venue for a wedding rehearsal. The bride asked me who she would need to bring. I told her that it would be a good idea to bring the person who's giving her away, in her case, her father, so we could teach him how to do it right. So we could teach him for the optics how to place her hand into the hand of her future husband and turn her round to face him and say, I do at the appropriate moment and give her a wee kiss in the cheek and shed a wee tear as he goes back to sit beside his wife. And we could do probably with the best man. Best man will have the rings and he'll need to know when to hand those over. And we could do with the chief bridesmaid because the chief bridesmaid is handy because when the bride makes it up the aisle on her father's hand will want to take her flowers and give them to the bridesmaid to hold. So bring all of those people. Okay, she said, I'll get those. Should I bring the groom? I simply thought she'd take that for granted, that if she's going to be there, the groom will have to be there as well. Of course he will. Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. 
and on the great marriage supper of the Lamb, on that great day when we meet Christ and he is united with his bride, the church, we will be there as his completeness. Just as the bride and groom at a wedding would be incomplete without each other, so on that day we will stand beside our bridegroom. So to think of Christ without his bride, the church, is inconceivable. So Jesus is king and he's the head of his church and that leaves the Pope and of course any other man or woman redundant. The Savoy Declaration adds quite a lot to make us remember that. After the authors have said there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, they then go on to say, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ, and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. You might ask, why does Savoy target the Pope so severely, and not other earthly pretenders to Christ's position as head of the church. I think the Pope is singled out simply because of the outrageous claims that he makes, claiming titles like the Vicar of Christ, claiming infallibility when only God is infallible. The Pope embodies everything that is contrary to Christ's kingly headship over his church and certainly the present Pope, Pope Francis, is a good illustration of that. And so the Savoy Declaration considers his terrible end for this awful wickedness. So who is the head of the church? not the Pope of Rome, it's not the Queen of England, it's not even the local pastor. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ.